Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a fantastic and, dare we say, historic episode for you this week. Ambassador Martin Indyk is back with us to discuss the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, being marked, of course, next week, September 13th. On that momentous day in 1993, on the White House lawn, Israel, led by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, signed what's called the Declaration of Principles with the Palestine Liberation Organization, led by its chairman, Yasser Arafat. It was the first agreement of the Oslo Accords and the start of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. We'll take a look back at that time and that day and everything that came after, including up till the present day, with Ambassador Indyk. Martin, of course, served as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel twice, Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs, and as the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations in 2013-2014. Martin is currently the Lowy Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of Israel Policy Forum's Board of Directors and Advisory Board. Martin is also the author of the book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy, which came out in late 2021. Now, just a small point of information, later in the episode, we'll have a few announcements about big, and I mean that big, Israel Policy Forum events coming up in the next few weeks as part of Oslo at 30. So look out for that announcement later on. But first, a few thoughts from me. Okay, uh, summer is over, the kids are back in school, and we have a busy upcoming month here in Israeli politics, the Jewish high holidays notwithstanding. Let's do a quick recap of what we're looking at coming down the pike very, very soon. First, it's worth mentioning that the Knesset is still in recess until after the holidays, basically the second week in October, so still a month away. This is important because when the Knesset is in recess, you can't really pass any laws. Some would say that's a great thing, but as we'll get into in a second, the calendar here has a major role to play. Second, we're looking at three big, and again, I mean that big, if not historic, that word again too, Supreme Court petitions coming up. The biggest one is on September 12th, next week, where the entire court, 15 justices, which has never happened before in Israeli history, will take up the issue of whether their reasonableness bill passed in late July is legal and constitutional or not. Remember, this was the first real bill passed as part of the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul agenda. If struck down, it would be the first time the Supreme Court does so to a quasi-constitutional basic law. A lot of firsts going on here, as you've probably noticed, and the stakes could not be higher. The other big petitions are set to take place on September 19th, uh, i.e. effectively forcing the government to convene the committee that appoints judges, that's the petition, and September 28th, which is all about the bill that the government passed earlier this year, making it near impossible to declare a prime minister incapacitated, uh, i.e. unfit for office. We have to wait and see what the court decides, obviously, but it should be very clear that the front line in the battle over Israeli democracy this month is the Supreme Court itself. The protest movement, for its part, has already announced it'll be in Jerusalem next week, outside the court, during the hearings, to lend its support to the justices and to hopefully stiffen their collective spines. Finally, as if this all wasn't dramatic enough, we got word yesterday evening about a possible, emphasis on possible, compromise proposal between the coalition opposition being negotiated by President Isaac Herzog. I'm recording this intro on Tuesday morning, so it may get overtaken by events pretty quickly here, but we'll take that risk. And I'll just say a couple of things. The deal as reported last night, and it was leaked to multiple outlets all at the same time, isn't in and of itself egregious, but it does have two main problems. The first problem No one believes or trusts Bibi Netanyahu, nor should they, quite frankly. When he ostensibly says certain assurances will be legislated and certain laws, like the reasonableness bill itself, will be re-legislated and softened, who can actually guarantee he'll follow through on these promises? 
especially with the Knesset still weeks away from coming back. The issue of the calendar here, i.e. the timing of this quote-unquote compromise deal being announced, is really, really critical. With regard to the Knesset still being a month away from its winter session, that's critical. With regard to the looming retirement of Supreme Court Chief Justice Esther Chayut next month, that's really, 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 really critical. Uh, and retirement, by the way, from the Supreme Court here is mandated at the age of 70. Uh, and also with regard to all the aforementioned petitions set to be taken up in the coming weeks, that's also very, very critical. If a deal is ostensibly, quote unquote, in the works and being negotiated, the justices may simply decide to let the politicians figure it all out and actually delay the hearings, uh, as the government has demanded they do anyway uh, in recent days. Again, not a coincidence. All this, even before we get into the issue of Netanyahu's upcoming trip to the UN General Assembly meetings and the speech he's set to give on September 21st, and also a possible meeting with President Joe Biden, including possibly at the White House. Yet another thing that's happening this month in the midst of all the holidays. But I'd argue the second problem with regard to this possible compromise deal that was leaked last night is this. The Likud immediately denied the report. Betzalel Smotrich, Itamar Ben-Gvir, and even Likud Justice Minister Yerib Levine have already publicly rejected the contours of the deal, as did many other coalition backbenchers. In other words, even if, as the reports indicated, wink, wink, Netanyahu had ostensibly agreed, it doesn't seem like his government did. Which lends itself to the overarching question on this deal, and also a possible Israel-Saudi-US deal. Can Bibi Netanyahu actually follow through on anything he may or may not have agreed to and promised? Does he even have control over his party, let alone his government, let alone his coalition? On the evidence of the past eight or nine months, the answer, I'd argue, is a resounding no. Let's get to Martin Indyk. Hi, Martin. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Mary. Good to be with you again. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on again, Martin. Uh, so... As our listeners know, we're going to be mostly talking about the Oslo Accords, which will be marking their 30th anniversary on September 13th. And uh, full disclosure, Martin and I are recording this the last week in August, and it should be coming out the week prior to September 13th, uh, prior to that historic date. Uh, but Martin, I wanted to start here, taking a look back, if you could, in retrospect, uh, at those more perhaps carefree, optimistic, hopeful days of the early 1990s, what was the mood like in U.S. policy circles ahead of the signing of the Declaration of Principles uh, in the Rose Garden? Um, after all, the talks that led to those accords uh, a few months beforehand came as a surprise to U.S. policymakers and analysts, right? Exactly. We were suffering from what's known in Washington as policy whiplash. <laughs> when uh, all your assumptions about what's happening fly out the window and you have to find a way to adjust to the new reality. We were, at the time of the Oslo deal being made uh, between Israeli and Palestinian negotiators in Oslo um, or nearby Oslo, we were engaged in an effort uh, supported, encouraged by Prime Minister Rabin uh, to make a peace deal between Israel and Syria. We were focused on the Syria track. Hmm. And uh, indeed, the last thing that had happened before we found out about Oslo was that uh, we'd been in Jerusalem, we, the peace team, under Secretary of State Ron Christopher, had come from Damascus to Jerusalem to report on the latest discussions with Hafez al-Assad of Syria. And Rabin had gone out in the press conference with uh, Warren Christopher and uh, declared good news from Syria. We were kind of surprised by that because the news that we brought wasn't particularly good. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as we got back into the van, Dan Kurtzer, that was there. And Dan was the one person in our peace team, subsequently ambassador to Egypt and then ambassador to Israel, 
who had been kind of staying in touch with uh, Hirschfeld and Pundak, the uh, Israeli professors who who uh, had launched Oslo. Um, and he said to us, as we kind of wondered what the hell Rabin was saying about good news from Damascus, he said, well, I've just been told that they're actually, they've reached an agreement. Uh, on, uh, it wasn't called Oslo. It was just the, the, on this this you know secret track, mm. track two track. Right. Then we said, ha ha! You know, we scoffed at that. Said, That's ridiculous, <laughs> and, and went off for all of our summer vacations. It was August, and uh, I went off to Australia to my uh, nephew's bar mitzvah, and discovered. Uh, the day after I arrived, uh, through a phone call from Dennis Ross, that there was an agreement <laughs> between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He had just been briefed with Christopher at uh, Point Magoo in California, where Christopher had a holiday house, mm-hmm. and Shimon Perez had arrived and briefed him on, on the deal. And uh, Dennis called me and said, you better come back. We're hosting a, a ceremony in the White House. I was then in charge of the Middle East in, in the White House as President Clinton's Middle East advisor in the National Security Council. Right. So uh, that's how we found out about it. Uh, it was all done behind our backs, and uh, President Clinton decided to embrace it and get behind it. But I have to say personally, I had, Deep, deep doubts. First of all, I was uh, was upset that uh, you know our efforts on the Syrian track had been completely uh, subverted and diverted, um, and and I had deep doubts about embracing Yasser Arafat, hmm. and especially about uh, arranging for him to come to the White House, uh, which for me uh, at the time I considered just just beyond the pale. He was on our terrorism list. Um, the idea that he would be an honoured guest at the White House uh, was something that, that I then took to the National Security Advisor, Tony Lake, and he said, you're right, we can't have him here. And we went in to see President Clinton on our first discussion about hosting the event. <clears throat> and we both argued, and Dennis Ross supported that that there was no way that we could have Arafat in the White House. We'd have to have somebody else come and sign for the for the PLO. Mm-hmm. And so that that was our initial reaction. And so what you're getting at is that it wasn't inevitable that the US would play a role or would embrace these accords or this agreement that the Israelis and Palestinians had reached uh, without uh, your full knowledge. Uh, and you're also saying that it wasn't quite inevitable that the ceremony at the Rose Garden with obviously Arafat in attendance uh, would have actually happened the way it happened. We actually had, until the briefing in Point Magoo, we actually had no visibility into what what they'd agreed on. We were not involved at all, consulted at all on the contents of the Oslo uh, framework agreement, and, and that became a problem subsequently. But the issue of, you know, who would turn up and how much we would embrace it was a decision made by the president. Mm-hmm. And he is, you know, he was, uh, have a clear, had a very clear view that was quite different to ours, ours meaning Dennis Ross's and, and mine and, and Tony Lake's. Um, he believed that the only way this was going to work was if both Rabin and Arafat embraced it publicly and showed their publics, that they were behind it. And the politician in Clinton understood something that we did not at the time, uh, you know, that, that this was this was going to be a really difficult thing to promote and, uh, successfully, mm-hmm. and the United States needed to get behind it. He personally needed to get behind it. But Rabin and Arafat needed to be out there, out front, um, embracing it and and taking responsibility for it. And so against our advice, he arranged for Arafat to be invited um, to the White House. 
And did the Israelis, did Rabid himself or Paris weigh in on that issue or did they also see it as perhaps inevitable that uh, the chairman of the PLO would actually come to the ceremony? Well, um, it's interesting uh, question because uh, there was a similar argument going on uh, in Jerusalem. Um, Rabin didn't want to come because he didn't want to basically be there with Arafat. He preferred that Perez uh, be the fall guy, sure. as it were. Sure, but sure. but um, there was part of him that didn't like the idea that Perez would be would get all the credit <laughs> uh, for something that he had he had taken responsibility for ultimately in the negotiations. Um, and so when Clinton called him to discuss it, that first conversation, and I was in the Oval Office listening into it, Clinton, off the bat, says, I think you need to be here. And Rabin says, oh, no, Mr. President, it'll be difficult for you. I don't want to create a difficulty for you. And Clinton is looking at me over his um, reading glasses, and, and he says, it won't be difficult for me. You need to be here. I'll take care of the permit. And Rabin says, no, 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 Mr. President, you know, I, I really don't want to create something that's awkward for you. Now uh, Clinton's getting red-faced and saying, you know, it's fine. It's not a problem for me. You need to be here. And, you know, Rabin repeats it again and they kind of end the phone call. And Clinton now, he's angry and he looks at me and he said, you told me Rabin didn't want to come. I'm telling you he wants to come. And I'm telling you, he needs to come. And you better make sure that he comes. <laughs> and I said, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, and, and he didn't believe that I would do it. So he called Christopher and said, I want you to make sure that Rabin is here. You call him and say that the president is inviting him. And Christopher did that when Rabin heard the words, you know, the president is inviting him. That gave him the explanation for coming. What can I do? The president's inviting me. And uh, so he agreed to come. The only problem was he didn't tell Perez. And um, that created a huge crisis in Jerusalem when Perez found out at like 6 a.m. in the morning on the morning news that uh, Rabin was going to Washington. And, uh, and he resigned. Uh, and then we had a go-round, which I won't go into all the details, but essentially we figured it out that, that Rabin would come, but Perez would, would sign, um, and that Arafat would come, but Abu Mazen uh, would sign. Right. And, and that, that's the, the way it uh, worked out. Um, so Perez was under the assumption that he was going solo and that he would be the center of attention. Right, and so we had to figure out a way to to finesse that, which we did um, in a variety of ways: having him sign, having him up on the podium, um, having them as co-equals. If you remember that right. that scene there, um, and then afterwards, Juan Christopher hosted a lunch for Perez alone in the State Department. Uh, invited the whole diplomatic corps, all of the Arab ambassadors and so on. It was a big event uh, for Perez. And uh, Rabin dined alone with Clinton uh, in the White House. Arafat went off to his hotel. Very interesting. And just following up on September 13th and then the aftermath, when did the U.S. and really the peace team actually get fully involved in what later became known as the peace process and subsequent agreements like uh, the Cairo Agreement in 1994 and later agreements? Yeah, well, it was almost immediate. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, the, the fact that the president got behind it, embraced it. You remember that iconic photograph of him with his arms around Rabin and Arafat as they shook hands, uh, which was all carefully choreographed. Uh, it was a symbol of uh, the way in which he had decided that uh, 
this was only going to work if the United States put the full weight of, uh, of it, its influence behind it. So almost immediately we were we were involved um, dealing with Arafat uh, and and um, dealing with the negotiators. For a while there, they were negotiating on their own and reporting to us, both sides reporting to us. Didn't take long before we were actually in the room trying to um, uh, work the process. But, you know, also it was a framework agreement. There had to be implementation agreements from the Gaza-Jericho deal, with, which put Arafat back in Gaza to uh, to the Oslo II Accords, uh, which provided for the Palestinian Authority to take over, you know, uh, what was it at the time, I think, uh, 27% or something of the West Bank. Right. Um, and we, we were heavily involved in all of, in all of those things, but, you know, we were, we were really kind of playing catch up, um, because as I said, we weren't involved. We didn't know what the trade trade-offs were. We were learning on the run what exactly was involved. And, and, um, we hadn't shaped, we inherited it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, made it complicated for us and, and difficult in many ways. Most importantly, it made it difficult for us to hold each side to their commitments, um, commitments which had been made to each other, not to us. And we didn't really have standing there, and, and I raised that because I believe that was the heart of the problem with Oslo. Not the framework of the deal itself, which I actually uh, defend to this day, but the fact that both sides observed their commitments in the breach, mm -hmm. did not live up to their commitments, and that destroyed the Oslo process. And there was no real arbiter to, uh, to tell each side, you're not doing this, you're not fulfilling that commitment, uh, and vice versa. Exactly. I mean, we tried, but we didn't have the standing Got since we had not been the midwife. Right. And looking back at those, at those, uh, what's called the Oslo years, i.e. the 1990s, um, even though they only really lasted from my count six years, right? If you take the summer of 1994 and the actual physical establishment in Gaza and the West Bank of, of the Palestinian Authority, uh, looking back at those six years, it's considered the, the golden age of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, or what was then known, the Middle East peace process, uh, quite grandiosely. Uh, you were obviously intimately involved throughout this entire period. Was the feeling back then, say in 94, 95, and really until 2000, the outbreak of the Second Intifada, that of course this process would ultimately succeed and, and bring peace? Was that the feeling in the room, or was it a bit more, say, sober-minded and maybe even more pessimistic than uh, how we look back on this period as, as this golden age of peacemaking? As I look back, you know, I think we were we were basically optimistic, um, too optimistic. Mm -hmm. But I think the the, um, the feeling in the, in the American peace team was that that. Um, as difficult as it was to get the implementation agreements, to get the sides to live up to their commitments, to deal with the Palestinians because they weren't a state and they didn't have state institutions and they didn't have capacity, um, which was a you know, fundamental flaw in the, in, in, in the Oslo Accords that Oslo itself couldn't really make up for. The fact is, we, you know, we were dealing with a with a revolutionary terrorist organization that, that needed to make the transition to to uh, assuming state-like responsibilities and uh, and they were, they were lousy at it. Um, but, but, you know, we uh, in those halcyon days, we we didn't really, I mean, we were very aware of it, we were frustrated by it, but it didn't hold us up. And while Perez and Rabin were in charge of it, you know, it moved forward. And they they were really the adults in the room. They 
put their arms around Arafat and moved him forward. Um, mm-hmm. And they were uh, an ideal combination. Perez would come up with creative formulas and do his magic with Arafat and, and bamboozle him and persuade him that this was in his interest. And Rabin would would handle Arafat and, and make him feel like he was a partner and give him his due, his respect, and, and, and um, the combination was very effective. And so that made our job a lot easier. Um, once uh, Rabin was gone and then Perez with, with the uh, defeat to Netanyahu in, in the election that came soon after Rabin's assassination, um, it became a completely different kind of negotiation in which we were engaged in a really hard slog to convince Netanyahu to go forward with Oslo, even though he, I, I feel from the very beginning, was determined to undermine it. He, he nevertheless, we, we were able to use our influence to push him into the Hebron Agreement and then the Y Agreement in 19. 19- 98, which provided for the handing over of 13% of the West Bank mm-hmm. to the Palestinian Authority by Netanyahu. Um, that year and a half period was just hugely difficult. And while I went into that period thinking that what Rabin and Perez had done made the process irreversible, and I remember I used to talk that way about it in public, it's ir- that it's irreversible, it turned out that I was completely wrong about that. And, and uh, the, the, the process that, that uh, Rabin and Perez had initiated was really uh, stalled uh, and placed on life support um, in, the, in the years after that. Due to the rise of uh, this, what was back then, a, a young right-wing prime minister who uh, actively campaigned against Oslo. I'm sure it was uh, quite difficult. For sure, that was a a critical element in it. But let's not forget the terrorism that was being perpetrated um, by Hamas uh, and Palestine Islamic Jihad that Arafat was not willing to crack down on. Ironically, until after Netanyahu was elected, then he started to do it, um, enabling Bibi to argue that you know he solved the terrorism problem. It was actually Arafat who, who did it, proving that he could. Right. Until it served his interest to go back to it in the Intifada. Right, in uh, the fall of 2000. Um, Martin, uh, you may or may not remember this, but last summer when you were on the podcast, uh, you politely corrected me uh, and you said that the Oslo process was uh, in fact envisioned as this uh, gradualist, incrementalist process. Uh, you called it Kissingerian, a uh, very Kissinger-esque uh, approach to it. Uh, but you said that after Oslo, really, um, subsequent leaders went away from this gradualist approach and more towards a, say, big bang, all or nothing approach to uh, to peace talks and final status issues like Jerusalem and refugees and the like. I wanted you to maybe unpack this idea further in terms of, say, past uh, peacemaking efforts. When, to your mind, did that shift actually occur and who who actually decided on this very different approach than what you, uh, you argued uh, last summer was uh, what Oslo had envisioned being more gradualist and incrementalist? Right. People forget that the Oslo Accords were silent on all the final status issues. You won't find anything in Oslo about a Palestinian state or about borders, I mean, other than a reference to to Resolution 242, um, or about refugees or about Jerusalem. Uh, Rabin purposely uh, insisted that those issues needed to be left until later. Instead, there would be an incremental process of Israeli withdrawal, step by step, which is the Kissingerian side of this. Um, 
phased Israeli army withdrawal from parts of the West Bank to be negotiated um, until there would be a final status negotiation. But the whole idea was that the phased withdrawal would give the Palestinians time to build their institutions, to exercise control, particularly over the terrorist opposition on the Palestinian side to Oslo. And um, for both sides to have confidence in the intentions of the other, such that they could approach the final status issues with a, a desire, mutual desire for a compromise agreement. And, and that was the notion, sounds idealistic in retrospect, but it actually, in my view, was a very realistic approach to trying to end the conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, the notion that you could jump to final status and resolve these incredibly difficult uh, and complicated and emotional final status issues um, in one fell swoop uh, was the idealistic notion. Um, the, the realistic approach, and that that's, was Kissinger's approach, was to recognize that both sides weren't ready for those compromises yet, that it would take time. And you remember that Rabin said constantly, there are no sacred timetables to this. Right. Um, because he understood it as a process. And I think that that, that was the essence of it, and it, it worked while he was still alive. After he died, the whole thing began to uh, crater. Um, and, and the time it took to negotiate another further uh, redeployment, which is what the phases were called, uh, with Netanyahu, uh, was just so fraught and difficult and, and caused such disillusionment on both sides with terrorism going on in between and, and, and settlement activity uh, from the Likud government of Netanyahu increasing and both sides questioning more and more whether this deal was worth it. Instead of building trust, it, it basically destroyed the trust uh, between the people and between the leaders. And, and so then Ehud Barak comes into office on a mandate to finish, finish uh, Rabin's work. Mm -hmm. But he, first of all, wants to go off and do the Syria deal which we embraced because if you remember what I said at the beginning, that was always our desire to have the Syria deal first. Right. But it left Arafat on the sidelines after he'd been waiting a long time and, and led him to believe that he was being ignored and even insulted by Barak. And then when the Syrian deal failed, suddenly we turned back to Arafat and he was in the catbird seat. And Barak decided that forget about another further redeployment, let's go to Camp David, let's resolve it all. And, and let's decide once and for all, let's, if you remember, he said, let's unmask Arafat. Mm -hmm. Well, that was kind of a hell of a way to make peace. Um, but, uh, you know, he convinced, Clinton, who was in his last year in office, that this was the only only way to go, that he couldn't afford to do another further redeployment. He could only do a big deal in which uh, it, they, they would agree to end the conflict and end all the claims, and that would be it. There would be peace, a peace deal that he would take to his people that would be painful, but that he could say, it's over. In other words, the exact opposite of the incremental approach of, of Yitzhak Rabin. Right. And the, the, the great danger that we can see in retrospect that we didn't pay enough attention to at the time 
was that if we tried and we failed, we'd be left with nothing. And, and that is what happened. And that, you know, led, led, you know, direct line from there to the uh, Intifada. It's interesting. When I interviewed Ewood Brock a couple of years ago and I asked him about this, uh, this episode, uh, especially when he came back from Camp David and the failure of those peace talks and uh, what he said in uh, the general sentiment amongst the Israeli public and political class was that, well, we showed that there was no partner on the other side. Uh, Barack in his interview with me said, well, I didn't mean that there was no partner forever. I just meant that in this moment in time, there was no partner, uh, which, which I found, um, well, we, it, that wasn't, that wasn't sentiment that was being portrayed uh, at the time. I don't think. No, no. And that, and it was easy first of all, in the circumstances of the Intifada when, when um, you know, casualty rates on both sides, but, but from an Israeli perspective on the Israeli side were horrendous. Um, the, you know, the idea of no partner took hold uh, very easily and, and pretty much permanently to this day. Um, and, and mm, you know, notwithstanding the efforts that Abu Mazen made to end the Intifada, to oppose terrorism, to build his security forces and work with Israeli security forces against the terrorists, um, he has never been accepted by Israelis as, as a partner. No, and uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, this period with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen as leader of the Palestinians, and, and quite uh, committed to security coordination and to countering terrorism uh, in cooperation with the Israeli forces, uh, his the bulk of his term has coincided with the, the bulk of uh, Netanyahu's comeback uh, after 2009. Uh, I think yeah. if there was a, di yeah. a different Israeli leader uh, in power here over the past, what, most of the past 14 years, uh, maybe there would have been, um, say, more prospects for renewed peacemaking. Um, but it's a, it's a counterfactual, if I can interrupt you in there. Yeah. Uh, we'll never know, but I have to say that the fact that no Israeli uh, political leader uh, on the left um, during this era that you're talking about was prepared to run on a campaign of resolving the Palestinian conflict suggests that there's something deeper than just just Netanyahu's uh, manipulation of the public. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, that the Intifada coming in the wake of what was a generous offer by Barak at Camp David uh, led, led Israelis across the board to conclude that we don't have a partner. And it's been impossible to shape uh, that belief. It is, I think, much easier for Israelis to turn their backs on the Palestinians and to ghost them um, and, and you know, just basically ignore them as much as they could. Um, but to engage in a, in a peace process, um, there's, there are very few people in Israel that I found that thought that that was, that was a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I can't, uh, can't disagree with that, Martin. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. As we mark 30 years since the signing of the Oslo One Accords, join our Israel Policy Briefing featuring New York Times opinion columnist Thomas Friedman at 3 p.m. Eastern on September 13th, the date of the anniversary. The conversation will include reflections on the Oslo era, alongside analysis of today's challenges and opportunities regarding Israel's place in the Middle East. And join us at Addis Israel Congregation in D.C. on Tuesday, September 19th, for a special program commemorating the Oslo legacy. The evening will feature two panel discussions, one with Israeli, Palestinian, and American participants in the peace process, and another focused on exploring the visions for the future and prioritizing voices of the next generation. Links to register for both of these programs can be found in the show notes of this podcast. 
If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. Since we're on the subject of uh, renewed peacemaking, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight the fact that uh, a decade ago, back in 2013, 2014, uh, U.S. Special Envoy led the last real effort to get the Israelis and Palestinians to to re-engage in serious peace talks. Um, Now, again, it it is hard to believe that uh, this was a decade ago now. Uh, since this is the last precedent we really have to go by, what uh, what can you tell us about your experience from from back then? Uh, how close were the two sides really to making, say, some kind of progress? And maybe even, you know, more interestingly, uh, given the what we were just talking about, uh, how does the Bibi Netanyahu of a decade ago compare to what we're seeing now, which uh, seems to me is a much more hardline and, and right wing Bibi Netanyahu? That last episode, which I was directly involved in, came about as a result of the sheer willpower of the Secretary of State, John Kerry, uh, convinced that if he didn't try to move the parties to a peace agreement, a framework agreement, um, it would be over. And, And he was just determined to get them to do it. He didn't really have the backing of uh, President Obama, who had tried in his first term and given up on both Abu Mazen and, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu. But he was prepared to let indulge Kerry. And Kerry, with his willpower, managed to get them back into the negotiating room. Um, and um, where, where I was uh, kind of sort of presiding over, over the negotiations. Um, because I say sort of because Bibi didn't want the Americans in the room and Kerry insisted. Um, but that effort uh, was really a, a, a futile effort from start to finish uh, because both Bibi, Netanyahu, and, and Abu Mazen um, were willing to go along with Kerry's insistence, but they entered the process and pursued the process as an attempt to ensure that the other side got blamed when it broke down. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that either of them intended, believed in the possibility of reaching an agreement. It was all about the blame game. Um, And and, uh, so we had some fairly intensive negotiations that were more like exchanges really where each side laid out their position and explained their positions to the other side but that was a useful exercise for us for the americans in the room because it gave us a very good sense of what each side needed for a deal and so that's when we put together the Kerry principles a kind of updated version of the uh, Clinton parameters uh, that were uh, presented back at the end of President Clinton's term in office that laid out the basis for a, for a two-state uh, solution. And, and um, I think that that, uh, that that was a useful exercise because it, it went nowhere, um, but it, it did uh, give the United States a basis for for uh, proceeding, should there ever become a time when you've got leadership on both sides willing to engage again in, in the effort, we could pick that template up quite quickly and quite easily because it is a reflection of a year of negotiations uh, with the two sides directly. Right. Um, but for the time being, it's, it's not relevant um, because essentially – Neither side was was interested in doing a deal. Um, the publics on both sides were deeply sceptical. Rather than pushing their leaders to make a deal, they were supporting them not making a deal. And, you know, we had settlements 
gone wild during that period. And and it, the whole environment for peacemaking just just became impossible. And and there was, however, one incident that I that I want to highlight here um, because it was the last night of the last negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians um, back in 2014. There hasn't been any negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians since. And on that last night, Netanyahu sent Itzik Molcho, his, his lawyer and, and uh, counselor, and uh, Tzipi Livni, who was head of the uh, negotiations for the Israelis, uh, to a meeting in, in uh, Jerusalem uh, with uh, Saab Arakat and, and Majid Faraj, uh, the Palestinian negotiators. Mm-hmm. And there, Molcho presented an offer from the Prime Minister of some 30,000 dunams of sea area land that would be handed over to the Palestinian Authority. Moho explained that this could be done under the Oslo Accords without a cabinet decision and that the Prime Minister was prepared to do this in order to uh, extend the negotiations and, and because at that point the agreed period for the negotiations had expired and we were focused on trying to get the extension. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been in lieu of a settlements freeze that the uh, Palestinians were insisting on and, and Bibi would not, could not uh, do. Uh, and the Palestinians were very interested in this offer. They needed more land in, in the sea areas for their towns and cities hemmed in by, by area C to, to grow. And, and um, so we left that night, like 3 a.m. in the morning, thinking that we had a way forward. And it was the first time I'd heard of this possibility, that it would be transferred directly. There's nothing about building permits and the usual pucker-pucker that, that um, Netanyahu's government engaged in. This was just a straight transfer of territory. And um, the Palestinians were enthusiastic about it. The problem was they never got to brief Abu Mazen, who unbeknownst to us, but probably known to Bibi, uh, was engaged in a negotiation with Hamas, which had reached fruition Mm. for a reconciliation, which he announced the next day in the morning. Uh, Abu Mazen announced it, and that gave Bibi the uh, hook to call off the negotiations because he wasn't going to negotiate with Hamas. Um, And that was the end. But that that offer of, of sea area territory uh, had been placed on the table. And uh, it means that Netanyahu is able uh, to make such a transfer from C to B or A. So that's very interesting that this was an offer from Netanyahu himself uh, to transfer area C territory, something uh, that at least outwardly these days, uh, his government is, is not willing to do, uh, even in the context of a possible deal with Saudi Arabia, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, just for our listeners, when we're talking about areas A, B, and C, this is a division in the West Bank, uh, by the way, agreed to under the Oslo Accords. Uh, area A is full Palestinian control, uh, pretty much the Palestinian major population centers in the West Bank. Uh, area C, about 60% of the West Bank, uh, it's full Israeli control. Uh, this is where the settlements lie. This is where the IDF is. Uh, and Area B is something in between uh, where basically Palestinian villages in the West Bank, uh, but it's under Israeli security control, just FYI. Um, Martin, Taking us back or up to the present, uh, last time you were on, I also asked you about uh, to assess the prospects for uh, a two-state solution. Um, I'm going to ask you this question again, but uh, with the perspective of 
the events of the past year and primarily the election in November here in Israel and the rise of this uh, far-right uh, Netanyahu government. Um, what do you think in terms of the current politics in Israel and especially the, the makeup of this Israeli government, which seems to have been completely co-opted and taken over by, by the far right, uh, including you know, policies on the ground that we're seeing every day? Has that, has that shifted your, your optimism? Are you, uh, are you more or less bullish in terms of the prospects going forward for a two-state solution? Oh, I'm deeply pessimistic at this point. Um, because I think that uh, Oslo has been uh, dying for some time, but um, this Israeli government, um, with Bezalel Smotrich as the minister within the defense ministry with responsibility for settlement activity and for promoting the legalization of illegal outposts and the de jure uh, annexation by transferring to civilian control um, the Israeli population in the occupied territories um, is hell-bent on uh, implementing his plan, which he published, as you know, Neri, in 2017. Mm -hmm. And his plan is to do away with the Palestinian Authority, to do away with Palestinian national um, aspirations, to... Uh, ensure that the, those Palestinians who decide to stay in the West Bank, and he expects that many will leave and wants to encourage many of them to leave, according to his plan. Uh, but those who stay will be permanently uh, in a second-class status, not citizens, not enjoying the rights of, of citizens and, and under Israeli um, uh, occupation, control, um, but, but having no prospects um, for any kind of, of freedom uh, from Israeli control. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's going for that one-state solution. And because he's managed, together with Itamar Ben-Gvir, to take Netanyahu hostage, um, Netanyahu is going along with it. And the rest of the world, including the United States, is wagging their finger but not prepared to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that um, Smotrich's plan, which is at heart to destroy Oslo and the notion of an Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation based on uh, two states for two people, uh, is, is uh, it's well on its way. And... Um, there is, I think, very little chance of stopping it unless um, this Israeli uh, government uh, comes down and uh, elections produce a different different outcome. Um, but short of that, in the next three years, if that's how long the government lasts, um, I, I believe that he will succeed in his purpose and that will have a really dire impact not only on the chances of reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians, but on the future of Israel as both a uh, Jewish and a democratic state. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree with that. Um, although one thing, this is my next question to you, Martin, the one thing that, that may at least uh, halt these plans could be possibly uh, an Israel-Saudi normalization deal with some kind of heavy uh, Palestinian dimension to it, obviously brokered by the U.S., uh, you have pretty good insight into uh, the various players and sides involved in this uh, quite complex potential deal. Um, what do you think or how do you assess the prospects for a possible Israel-Saudi normalization deal these days, which is obviously very much in the news because the Biden administration, uh, according to all reports, is actively pursuing it? Right. And and <clears throat> I think that the reason that we're even talking about it is not just that the President Biden is actively pursuing it, but that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, wants to do it. But he has a price. Uh, and it's a it's a, a big price and expensive for the United States. 
he, in exchange for full normalization with Israel, he wants a defense treaty with an Article 5-like commitment, Article 5 from NATO, mm -hmm. like commitment that an attack on Saudi Arabia will be treated as an attack on the United States. And he wants it as a treaty, meaning that 67 senators have to vote for it. He also wants an independent nuclear enrichment capacity that the United States would help him build in Saudi Arabia, a um, long list of sophisticated arms, including F-35s, and um, as a result uh, of that, uh, the president's decision to try to meet his requirements means that the president has to get 67 votes in the Senate. Without those 67 votes, there's no defense treaty. Without the defense treaty, there's no full normalization with Israel. Hmm. So in order to get those 67 votes, a Democratic president needs and wants a majority of those votes to be coming from the Democratic side. Um, he doesn't want to get the 67 votes by depending on the Republicans. And in any case, to depend on the Republicans in an election year to give him that kind of political victory is, is questionable. Right. So he's got to bring the Democrats on board. And Democrats, not just the Bernie Sanders and, and the, you know, the progressive wing, but centrist Democrats want a significant Palestinian component to this deal. And that's what's important here. Mohammed bin Salman says he wants Palestinian cover uh, for his deal, but he, his intention is to buy it. The Palestinian Authority is stepped for cash, in part because Israel is withholding some $750 million of Palestinian money. Um, but uh, because they're so desperate for cash, he can, he can buy them off. And, and from his point of view, that, that will buy him the cover that he, that he needs in the Arab and, and Muslim world. Um, so it's really up to Biden and those Democratic senators uh, to insist on a Palestinian dimension. Netanyahu has made clear that uh, in an interview with uh, Bloomberg uh, recently mm -hmm. that all he considers he has to do on the Palestinian front for this uh, deal is to check the box, quote unquote. Yeah, he said that. And Smotrich just, just uh, a couple of days ago made clear that from his point of view, there's nothing to be given to the Palestinians um, as part of this uh, deal. So we'll see how it plays out. But what I understand, uh, Netanyahu's people have been told very clearly is two things. One, that Saudi Arabia is paying for this deal, the United States is paying for this deal, Israel is going to have to pay for this deal as well. And the payment will have to come in terms of what Israel is prepared to do for the Palestinians, and that will have to include territory. Mm -hmm. C to B and A. The very thing that Netanyahu was prepared to do on the last night of the last negotiations some nine years ago. That transfer of territory from C to B and A is a critical element, in, as I understand it, in the bill that uh, President Biden is presenting to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And that, of course, is a bill that Smotrich is not prepared to pay. He's already made that clear. And so... What's unclear is whether Bibi will find a way to meet the American requirements, um, even if it means the collapse of his uh, far-right government, whether 
the Democrats in the Senate will insist on it in a way that President Biden will have no choice but to insist on it. And whether Mohammed bin Salman will also insist on, on this requirement. Um, if, if not, we could end up with a, with a deal that would be a turbo boost to the um, far-right government of Netanyahu and a real uh, betrayal of the protest movement. Um, or a um, or no deal at all. So I think the real challenge for American diplomacy at this moment is to present Netanyahu with a choice uh, that he could have peace with Saudi Arabia or maintain his far right government. But he can't have both. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting uh, assessment. I, I like the, uh, it's almost, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but it's a bit different than what I've heard and what other people have reported that uh, ostensibly the, the demand for some kind of Israeli concession vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, especially in terms of actual, say, West Bank territory, would be coming from MBS, from the Saudi side, in terms of what they ostensibly see as uh, Arab solidarity and not betraying the Palestinians, you're you're actually arguing that it's more politics in Washington that will lead the Biden administration to push the Israelis uh, for real concessions on the Palestinian dimension. MBS would be happy to have whatever Biden can extract from Netanyahu as part of the deal. Uh, when it comes to the Palestinians. He would be happy to be able to say that he got more for the Palestinians than the Emiratis did when they secured a three-and-a-half-year commitment from Netanyahu not to annex the West Bank. Um, but as far as I understand it, he is not insisting on territorial adjustments as uh, He's doing his own negotiation with the Palestinians to secure their support for it. And the Palestinians, having learnt their lesson from the failure of their opposition to the Abraham Accords, are willing now to, to engage with the Crown Prince. So, so he'll essentially find a way to buy them off. But he doesn't want to get into the messy details uh, of uh, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, agreements. He wants to leave that to the United States. So it, it really does depend on what Joe Biden uh, demands of, of Bibi Netanyahu for this deal. But bear in mind that, that Biden has leverage in this situation because the deal can't happen if the United States is not prepared to do its part and its part is a big part, I mean, requiring some really pretty dramatic and costly decisions on the part of the United States. A defense treaty with Saudi Arabia that's like a NATO defense treaty, um, an enrichment capability in Saudi Arabia. These, these can have profound knock-on effects to American uh, position and policy in the region. So this is an expensive deal from the point of view of the United States. And uh, I think President Biden is very clear that this is not a freebie for Netanyahu. There's no freebies for anybody in this. And that the Israelis uh, very much have to do their part as well. Exactly. And like you said, Martin, and I couldn't agree more, uh, done incorrectly, an Israel-Saudi normalization deal could... Uh, not only spell the end, really, of a potential two-state solution, uh, but also really undercut the uh, the Israeli protest movement against this far-right government. Uh, if the Biden folks do this uh, incorrectly, and I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, I want to just do do a wrap-up statement. Mm -hmm. You know, thirty years on since that great day on the White House lawn when. Yasser Arafat and, and Itzhak Rabin shook hands and, and 
announced their reconciliation and President Clinton embraced and supported them. Uh, Oslo is not yet dead, even though its death has been often pronounced. And this is the Holy Land, the land where a resurrection was supposed to have taken place. And it is entirely possible that the Israeli-Saudi peace deal could bring Oslo back to life with what would in effect be the equivalent of, a, of the third further redeployment that was never fulfilled under Oslo that still stands there on the books. And people should remember that the Oslo agreements are the only agreements between the Israelis and Palestinians, and they still hold today. They're still upheld, uh, supposedly in theory, but in, but, but in de declarations by this current Israeli government. And um, there is a part of the Oslo Accords that has not yet been fulfilled, which is the third further redeployment. And if there is an equivalent of transfer of territory from, from C to B to A, it will be the ultimate vindication of, of Rabin's incrementalist approach. And it might yet provide the basis for the resurrection of the two-state solution. Couldn't agree more. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to reminisce and look back uh, at Oslo at 30 years and uh, look forward to having you on uh, in future. Not, uh, not another 30 years, but uh, hopefully sometime soon. So thank you again. Thank you very much, Nari. Okay, thanks again to the great Martin Indyk for his very generous time and insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe, leave a rating for us on your podcast apps. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening. 